again this morning. And why, why, while you're doing that, a couple of you have told me that uh, your favorite vacation destination has been Glacier National Park. And I have never been there, but I've seen pictures, and the majesty and beauty is breathtaking, so I can see where that would be your favorite. But consider the irony, the tragedy of driving all the way to Glacier National in Montana's Rocky Mountains with its glacier-carved peaks and valleys standing there in awe while one of your friends won't get out of the car because they're captivated by some TikToker on their cell phone or some comedian telling funny stories. Glacier National Park doesn't lose anything if someone does that. It is glorious whether people see it or not. But we are the losers when we're standing beside that kind of majesty and beauty and glory, and we don't see it. And the grandeur of a place like Glacier National Park is simply a signpost to the greater glory of the one who created it. And the one whose unsearchable, unfathomable riches of grace are set forth in panorama in Ephesians 1 for us to bask our hearts in. Anyone who reads Ephesians 1 a few times and then thinks, then thinks he knows what it's about, it's like driving up to the ridge of the Grand Canyon, glancing around and then driving home and telling your friends, I've seen the Grand Canyon. It's ridiculous. As C.S. Lewis said, it would seem that often our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Each time I have studied Ephesians chapter 1 over the years and climbed into its foothills, I feel like I made it a little further in and farther up. And I've seen and tasted more of its glorious breezes. But I also sense that the mountain tops and peaks are a lot higher than I knew before. And so this morning, we're going to dig back into Ephesians 1. And let's just think of this as a glorious mountain range of God's unsearchable grace that he's given to us. So my sermon title this morning is Redemption, exclamation point, and the inside scoop, exclamation point. Redemption and the inside scoop. And we're going to look primarily at chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. But let's read from verses 3 through 10 in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, 
according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, in the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite or sum up, to unite or sum up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray what Paul prayed later in this chapter that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you, that you open the eyes of our hearts so that we may know what is this glorious hope to which you have called us. Holy Spirit, if you don't do that for us, it'll just be words that fall on dull ears. So help us, we pray. Help us to see afresh these incredible gifts, these incredible blessings that you have poured out on us in Christ, our great Savior, in his name we pray. We've already thought about two blessings a couple weeks ago. The blessing of uh, being chosen in verse uh, 4, and then being predestined to adoption in verse 5. And today we're looking at blessing number 3 and 4. But blessing number 3 is redemption. We have redemption through Christ's blood. And in verse 7... Paul writes, in him, of course, that's referring to Christ, and he just said the beloved, in God's beloved Son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And we use the word redeem today in various ways. You can redeem a coupon at a store or redeem a voucher for a free meal at a restaurant. We hear on the radio of someone coming forward to redeem their winning lottery ticket. Sports commentators talk about a star athlete who makes a terrible blunder but then redeems himself by scoring the winning goal just before time runs out. Tina, that's the closest I'll get to a soccer illustration, okay? But when the Bible talks about... When the Bible talks about... When the Bible talks about redemption, it's presupposing a very different background than redeeming vouchers and gift certificates, isn't it? It's thinking about a backdrop of enslavement, captivity, loss of liberty, living under a burden of debt, condemnation. It's thinking about doom and the fear of wrath. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul describes all of us as being children of wrath, objects of the wrath of God. Do you feel that burden? Normally, we don't think about that, do we? But we need to, we need to understand that the reality is we all once lived under that kind of burden. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you still live under that burden of God's wrath hanging over you. This isn't the anxiety that 
dad and mom might find out we lied about where we were last Friday night. No, this is much more like the horror expressed in that movie, Sound of Freedom. The horrors of the kidnapping of children and their enslavement in the sex trafficking of hundreds and thousands of them around the world today. And to redeem, to rescue those children out of that horrible condition comes only at great cost. Do you feel your lostness in that way? Whether it's what you used to be or what you currently are? Our need for redemption, brothers and sisters, wasn't merely just to pay a debt. It was infinitely worse. It was enslavement under the wrath of an infinitely holy God who never blinks or winks at your or my sin. If I had a really, really good day, and even this would be impossible, and I only sinned three times, okay? One time I had a judgmental thought towards someone else, prideful thought. One time I was envious of the new car I saw driving the road. Maybe one time I was impatient in traffic and, and got angry. That'd be a great day, wouldn't it? And the next day, maybe I had another day of just three sins a day. Got, got impatient with my kids. Maybe had an impure thought. Uh, if I had days like that, life would really be good for Carol, wouldn't it? But at three sins a day over the course of the year, that adds up to what? A thousand sins? And, and I have never done this, right? I've never done this for an hour in my life. Maybe when I was sleeping. A thousand sins. I made 63. 63,000 sins. Is it conceivable that any judge would be willing to just pardon a criminal with a rap sheet of 63,000 convictions? There is no way the God of the universe will look at me and say, hmm, it's okay. Matthew 18 in the parable of the unforgiving servant, it speaks of our sin against God as a debt that if you, if you calculate, it'd be like a $3 billion debt that we owe against owe to the God of the universe. None of us can pay that debt. Not one of us can pay that debt. That's the kind of burden and enslavement you and I needed to be redeemed from. You, we're not strong enough to escape from the omnipotent God. None of us are sneaky enough to hide from his omniscience. He always knows where you are. You're not wealthy enough to pay off your debt. Left to your own resources, left to my resources, you and I are helpless and hopeless to redeem ourselves. So do you see what an amazing statement it is in verse 7 when Paul says, In Him we have redemption. In Him, brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have redemption. No longer are we chained to or crushed by under an incalculable debt that we've amassed because the way we've ignored God and rebelled against God and done our own thing and told Him, don't call me, I'll call you. The word redemption in the Bible means to be set free by the payment of a price or a ransom. And who, which of us could ever pay the price necessary to free us to pay the debt that we owe God. There's only one who's worth 
and purity and glory are equivalent to the debt that we owe God by what we have done to him and exchanged his glory for the worthless idols of this world. And that one is God himself, God the Son, Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption. And the price that he paid was his very life, his blood, right? We have redemption through his blood. So redemption means to be released from something, to be set free. And what were we set free from? Set free from what? Released from what? Well, there are three aspects to our redemption as believers if we're trusting in Jesus. And the first is expressed right here in our, in our verse, verse 7. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness is the permanent cancellation of our sin because it's been paid for by the sacrifice of Christ. So brothers and sisters, if you are truly trusting in Christ, never let yourself believe that God has not forgiven you or will not forgive you for your sin when you confess to him. You have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. Hebrews 9.11 speaks of this redemption as an eternal redemption. It will never lose its value. Never. At the same time, never let yourself believe that your sins are no big deal. After all, they're forgiven. Your sins and my sins put the Holy Son of God on the cross. Picture Him there, brothers and sisters. When you're tempted to sin, see the crown of thorns that you pressed down on his head. The spikes that you drove through his hands and his feet. The spear that you thrust into his side. You and I put him there. And he endured it all gladly for our sakes. Can you grasp that? No wonder Paul keeps adding in this passage. It was according to the riches of of his grace. No wonder he says in chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive. What else would move God to do such a thing as to redeem us at the cost of the blood of his son? So never believe that God will not forgive your sin if you're trusting in Jesus and never think that your sin is no big deal. Let's hate our sin, brothers and sisters. That's what put our Savior on the cross. So forgiveness is the first thing that we've been released from. The second thing has to do with the final day of redemption. When there will be complete fulfillment of all of God's promises to us. And Paul refers to this in Ephesians 4.30 when he speaks of the redemption of our bodies or the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. And then in Romans 8, verse 30, he speaks of that same final day when we will receive the redemption of our bodies, when our bodies and all creation will be set free from all the negative effects of the fall and the curse. There will be no more arthritis, no more eyes that don't work right, no more emotional brokenness and mental illness. All of that we will be set free from on that great day of redemption. So forgiveness, our final redemption of our bodies, 
And then there's a third aspect that I want to just touch on as well that is in Paul's thought. And that is freedom from sinful living. God didn't merely forgive us and then say, go keep living the same way. No, he broke the, the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. Christ's blood sets us free from sinful living. And Paul speaks of this in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us, to redeem us from all lawlessness. Christ redeems and redeems us from lawless living, from sinful living, and to purify for himself the people for his own possession. So brothers and sisters, blessing number three that God has given us is redemption. Freedom from the guilt of sin, freedom from the all the... Our, our final day of redemption, freed from all the effects and the curse of sin, and at the present, freedom from the power of sin that we can walk in a new way of life. The fourth blessing, and this is point number two this morning, is that God has given us the inside scoop. You're aware that verses 3 through 14 are all one, one sentence in the original Greek. And so when they put it into our English Bibles, they try to divide it up into several sentences so it's easier to track. And if you compare translations, you can see it's difficult, very difficult to know exactly how to divide up these, the different sections of this long sentence. And so there are various opinions and thoughts about that in the translations and the, and the commentaries. Without being dogmatic, I think there's a break at the end of verse 7. And I'm taking verse 8 to be long with verses 9 and 10, okay? So without being dogmatic, I think that's how it fits together. So at the beginning of verse 8, the pronoun, the relative pronoun, which, starts a new thought. And of course, that refers to the, the grace that he's just mentioned at the end of verse 7. So this is how I would read verse 8 through 10. Which, which grace... He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In verse nine, he refers to a mystery and mystery here doesn't refer to something mysterious like a whodunit, but it's rather to something that was unknown to believers in the Old Testament times, which God revealed to his people through the apostles in the New Testament. So in a general sense, the mystery was about this question. How in the world is history going to unfold? What's going to work out? What's happening in history? And when believers in Paul's day look back on Old Testament history, on human history, they had to be thinking about all the ups and downs that we see in the Old Testament. We start with paradise in the garden, and then there's the fall. And then not long after that, there's the, the wickedness that leads to the flood, and then there's the Tower of Babel and the rebellion there. Then God chooses Abraham, and there's hope. 
but Abraham's descendants end up in Egypt for 400 years. God brings them out of Egypt, but then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Then they conquer Palestine, and then there's a period of judges. Up and down. Then there's David and Solomon and the kings and the glory of the, of the kingdom. But then the king was divided and the Assyrians later come and crush the northern kingdom and Babylon captures the southern kingdom. They return 70 years later, but they are weak and miserable under Roman rule. And then Messiah Jesus comes and there's hope again. There's hope of their final redemption. But no, he leaves and goes back to heaven. So saints and Pauls, they had to be wondering, how is all of this working out? Where is all this going? And the mystery of God's will there in verse 9 has, has to do with several pieces that all come together into one. One piece is the uniting of Jew and Gentile in the church. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 3. And that was no small thing. There was no love lost between those two groups of people, was there? Another piece is that the church is the beautiful bride of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5. But a third piece is not merely that the church with all of its different ethnicities will be united in Christ, but all of history and all of the created universe will be united together under Christ's eternal rule. And this is what verses 8 through 10 are talking about. And Paul calls this a lavishing of grace that God has given us. Why would Paul call this a lavish grace? I think the reason is this. It wasn't just believers in Paul's day, but it's all of us who wonder what in the world is going on. And it's very easy to be discouraged and just think, this is, this is, everything's going to hell in a handbag. We look back at our 2,000 years of history since Christ's day, and we see the dark ages. We see times of the glories of the church and the failures of their church. We see the horrors of slavery around the globe through the centuries. We see the wonder of freedom and democracy here in our nation for the last 200 years. And the rise of modern technology, dreams of a new world where there will be peace and prosperity for all. Well, two world wars crashed those dreams. The Nazi extermination of six million Jews and probably five million others. Stalin's murder of millions of Russians. We add to that the number of abortions. A few years ago, I read a quote from a Chinese official who boasted about keeping their population in check via 500 million abortions. These, num these numbers are staggering. What is the world coming to? Then we have the blood guilt of our own nation, where we have killed 60 million of our babies since Roe v. Wade. And we wonder, where is human history going? Is God at work in the middle of any of this? What is God doing? God wouldn't have to tell us how the story is going to wrap up, would he? He doesn't owe us that. But our God has lavished grace on us by making known to us this mystery about how it's all going to turn out. And he tells us 
that it's something in verse 9 he says it's set forth in Christ there's a plan for the fullness of time or actually time for the fullness of all the times of history and that plan is to unite all things in Christ so let's think about some of these terms and before and before you roll your eyes or yawn and think a gift of knowledge that's not very interesting think with me for a minute about what difference it knows when we know a difference it makes when we know the end of the story so think about one of the recent college football national champions and for most of us here that should be an opportunity to smile because at least or the last eight teams were all southern teams okay so think about one of your favorite teams who won the national championship i can almost guarantee you that every one of those teams had players and staff members who quit during that year it was too hard it wasn't worth the commitment and the sacrifice coach doesn't know what he's doing my teammates are jerks you know probably what they complained about was often true it was hard there were there were injuries and setbacks and arguments and bad decisions and jerks they had to be around but if they had known at the beginning of the season the mystery of who would win the college playoffs and that their team would win how many of them do you think might have stuck it out and instead of watching the championship game on TV in their apartments somewhere they would have been there on the field to receive their national championship ring brothers and sisters you and i will be tempted numerous times to throw in the towel on following jesus it's too hard the commitment is too high it takes too much sacrifice it's not worth it i got to go to church with all these jerks right i mean it's just too it's too tough but god in his lavish grace has told us what the end of the story will be to help us to persevere so that we will be there on the field with christ to receive something much greater than championship ring we will be part of his glory when he puts all this back together so paul says in verse 9 he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he set forth in christ as a plan it's like a household administration god has an administration for how all of this is going to be wrapped up in history and he's going to unite he's going to sum up everything in Christ at the end of chapter 1 Paul says in verse 20 that when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places that he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church so Christ reigns over everything and in Colossians Paul adds that Christ our savior he is before all things and in him all things hold together and that one day through Christ God is going to be pleased to reconcile all things to himself things in heaven and on earth making peace by the blood of his cross now this does not mean universalism all people will not ultimately be saved the bible is very clear on that only those who trust in Christ will be part of Christ's eternal kingdom but one day 
Everything in the entire universe will be rightly related to Christ and under his righteous rule. Both in the justice of his final judgment, when all rebels to his rule and all rebellion and wickedness is cast into the lake of fire. And also in the glorious inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth, in which all the broken pieces, all the fragmentation of our world will be healed and reconciled and knit together, united and summed up in Christ under his rightful reign for all eternity. On that day, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. All things will be reconciled in Christ's new heavens and the new earth. So to know the end of the story, brothers and sisters, to have the inside scoop is a lavish grace. But I fear that we don't often appreciate this grace of knowing all that God has revealed to us. I've been noticing some things this past week about my own cell phone habits. At least three things pop across my screen throughout each day. News flashes, social media posts, and the version verse of the day. There's more that pops up, at least those three things regularly pop up. Do you know which one I'm realizing I never click on? And I'm not proud of this. I never click on the version verse of the day. What I tell myself subconsciously is, well, I read my Bible earlier today, or I'm going to read later. I don't need to look at that. But you know which one I'm most tempted to want to pop and click on? Those news flashes. And most of the time, I'm not even interested in what they're reporting on. I couldn't care less what Kanye West and the Kardashians are doing. But, but it's like, that temptation to check it. And even if it does happen to be news that I'm really interested in, when I read or watch it, it tends to make me anxious or angry. Does anybody relate? We need to know what's going on in the world. But why, why do we do this to ourselves, brothers and sisters? Why do we go and look at and listen to and watch things that are probably just going to make us angry or make us anxious? And why do we avoid God's word, this lavish grace of knowing what's really going to happen? CNN and Fox and our social media will never give us any reassuring news about the future of the planet. But God's word will. He has lavished his grace on us by making known to us the mystery of his will. John Stott writes, History is neither meaningless nor purposeless. It is moving towards a glorious goal. What then is this mystery which God has made known, this revealed secret, this will or purpose or plan of his? In Ephesians 3, the mystery is the inclusion of Gentiles in God's new society on equal terms with Jews. But that present ethnic unity is just a symbol or foretaste of a future unity that will be even greater and more wonderful still. Already, Christ is head of his body, the church. But one day, all things, all things will acknowledge his headship. At present, there is still discord in the universe, 
but in the fullness of time that discord will cease and that unity for which we long will come into being under the headship of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. And brothers and sisters, one day all of us will look at each other and smile. I love it when a plan comes together. So by application this morning, and David and Leanne, if you'll come back up here in just a minute. So what is the application from verses 3 through 14? Parker, you too, if you're there. It's not to do something. There are no imperatives and there, there are no commands in, in this passage. In fact, the first three chapters of Ephesians don't have any commands for us. And the clear implication from the way Paul lays out Ephesians with three chapters of doctrine and theology about God before the three chapters on our duties and walking with him, the clear implication is that you and I can't behave rightly. We can't live rightly unless we believe rightly. This doesn't mean that we have to understand everything about the Christian life before we have to obey. No, not at all. But it does mean that the Christian life flows from the inside out. It begins in our hearts and souls with understanding, embracing God's incredible grace to us. And that flows out then in the way we live and work and treat other people. So today's application has not, not so much to do with doing, but rather with knowing. That God has enabled us to know these glorious spiritual blessings is a lavish Grace, brothers and sisters. So here's your application from Ephesians chapter 1. Meditating, believing, and treasuring. You may not have an MBA, but you can get an MBT, okay? Meditating, believing, and treasuring. Brothers and sisters, let's not come to this glorious mountain range of God's grace and goodness. Get out of our car to glance around for a few minutes and then drive back to eat lunch at Taco Bell. What a waste. God has given us all these glories. So meditate on them. Meditate on this passage or other passages. Put our cell phones and tablets away more, brothers and sisters. They're not helping us to live in hope and joy and love. Read this over and over. Write down your thoughts. Meditate. Pray for insight and understanding. Look at cross-references. Get a good commentary. Read a, what a good pastor says about these thoughts. Spend a lot of time, brothers and sisters, gazing at the beauty of these glorious mountain ranges of God's grace. Meditate on them and then believe them. Personalize it. These blessings are yours. If you are trusting in Jesus, all these blessings in chapter one are yours. You are one of God's chosen ones. He has predestined you to adoption as his child. And you have redemption, brothers and sisters. You have been set free from ever from the guilt and power of your sins. And God has made known to you the end of the story. And it's not just all individuals, it's corporately too, but personalize it, receive it, believe it, and then treasure it. Make it the treasure of your heart. Sam Storms writes these thoughts. Tolerate nothing in your life that might diminish your hunger for God's word. 
apply it with vigor and spiritual energy. God is most glorified in us when our knowledge and experience of him ignite a forest fire of joy that consumes all completing pleasures. And he alone becomes the treasure that we prize. If our learning and knowledge of God do not lead to the joyful praise of God, we have failed. Theology without doxology is idolatry. The only theology we're studying is the theology that can be sung, which is why Paul is so filled with praise in Ephesians chapter 1 about the glories of the grace of God. And let's stand in close together and just sing together. Let's sing to our wonderful Savior. Mm -hmm.